talking, if you agree that 90% is not up to you, then what do you do with the remaining 10%, right? And my major takeaway is for remaining 10%, you still got to maximize it, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's all you have to control. So you should treasure it even more. These two seemingly divergent ideas are both equally true, which is one, the game will always be rigged in some way. And two, you should always play to win, not just play to participate. Today, we have Dan on the show, who's the co-founder of Shipyard, an e-commerce data-related startup. I'll let Dan talk more about that in a little bit. I came across Dan when I was networking across the Boston startup scene. We got a drink together and just had a great time, and I thought, I have to have this guy back on the show. So here's Dan, a HBS graduate, a lot of impressive things, but uh, I'll kind of turn it over to Dan and tell you guys about himself. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Hanson and Seed. Uh, really glad to be here. As Hanson mentioned, I'm currently working on a startup in the e-commerce enablement space. Um, I've been interested in e-commerce for quite a while. Last few years when I was at business school, I met a lot of other people who were you know, in the commerce space and you know, they gave me a lot of great ideas. Um, also reconnected with my co-founder and we can get into that a little bit more later. Previously, before uh, business school, I worked at LinkedIn, the Mountain View office for about four years doing product there. And that was also a like, great experience. So far, my, my background's mostly been in tech. On the personal side, I loved movies. In business school, I did an internship in Hollywood. I was the assistant to a film producer, um, basically just like a coffee boy and answering the phone. Probably really only one time in your life when you can do that. So <laughs> I, I jumped on that opportunity. And yeah, I think, you know, someday in the future, I might still try to try to invest in my passion in um, film and TV. I remember Dan saying that making a movie was a, a possible dream of yours and not necessarily building a tech company, or at least not that, not just that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Just in case we need this, if you give a 30 seconds elevator pitch, what is Shipyard? Yes, so Shipyard, as we can describe two ways, it's supply chain planning software for e-commerce SMBs. The other way to think about it is we're trying to democratize Anaplan or Adaptive Insights for the smaller businesses that don't have the scale and the resources to implement very complex uh, enterprise software. But we want to bring the same level of sophistication around data and machine learning to these smaller businesses. Thanks a lot for that introduction. We also want to learn a bit more about you as a person. So where did you grow up? In my childhood was very like calm and very tranquil. And a lot of times there's literally nothing to do. Like there's no high speed internet growing up, right? Until the pandemic, you know, there was no high speed internet available. Only when the pandemic hit, everyone had to start working from home did the town start installing uh, satellite high-speed internet. So that's, I think, the, the, maybe the thing that affected me the most is just being comfortable with, with not doing much. Do you miss that kind of like delic lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I love like, you know, nature, like going hiking and you know, taking it easy in nature. I think that's, that's something that I really enjoy. 
It kind of feels counterintuitive, though, that you've taken what is at least stereotypically the opposite path, right? Being an entrepreneur, living in a big city, you know, being not only surrounded by, but really being part of that hustle every day to work super hard. And, you know, I'd imagine your life has very little of that idyllic, you know, chilling in nature and not doing much. You know, did you did you stay there and get sick of it or what is it? You know, the thing is, when you when you become an adult, you realize you're you have to make compromises. Right. It's uh, I didn't actually pick I didn't want to come live in the city originally. I think I came here uh, because I think it's the best for the business. Probably want to live in like the mountain somewhere. <laughs> Where did you get the idea of starting a business? Did you know that at a young age or was it something that, you know, sort of occurred to you when you were working a corporate job at LinkedIn? I didn't have any exposure to entrepreneurship growing up. Uh, like, as you mentioned, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of nowhere. There's almost like no entrepreneurship in that town, right? Everyone worked for, for the government of Canada. Um, it was basically a state-owned enterprise. It was only after I went to university, I met people who, you know, grew up in big cities and they were passionate about entrepreneurship. There was accelerator program at the University of Waterloo called Velocity, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But at that time, I think it was it was pretty eye-opening for me. Like I was just like, it was a fire hose information, right? I didn't actually join, but a lot of my friends were part of it. So they just dragged me out to events and I, I just tagged along and I learned a lot about uh, that. I think that kind of planted the seed of entrepreneurship um, for me uh, in, in the modern sense of the word. I think, though, however, it's probably, you know, like maybe this is like a, a fate thing or it's like a more like like a destiny kind of thing. But I think entrepreneurship has been in my blood for many generations. Actually, a lot of my relatives in Tianjin, they were in some ways small business owners. They're not entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley sense of the word, but a lot of them run things like flower shops or bakeries or tea shops or things like that, right? Um, and it's been like this for generations. I do remember the one time I went back to visit them. I think when I was in like grade nine, I remember we, there's a big family reunion kind of thing where, um, you know, I met like six of my uncles that I had never seen before. They asked me what my, what my career goals were as like a young child. And I was like, Oh, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I don't know. I just said something like pretty random, pretty like generic. Um, and they're like, you know what, you should, I think one of them said, you know what, you should consider doing entrepreneurship or I think he, the way he put it, you should consider running your own business. He said, you know, our family has been business owners for many generations. And at the time I was like, but I don't want to run a flower shop. You know, I don't want (laughs) to run a truck rental service. You know, that's like, like one of them had like a furniture store, like where they made like just chairs just themselves. Like, I don't want to be a carpenter. Why do I want to do that? But then later I realized there's actually a lot of truth to that. So I think it's like, I'm a strong believer in destiny. Nice, which is going to be an interesting topic in a little bit. So you sort of have this family tradition of entrepreneurship, whether you knew it or not. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when you went to university, your friends sort of dragged you into planting the seed of entrepreneurship. When did you decide to take the plunge? Because it's you know, Seed and I talk about this all the time, right? We ourselves and we know a lot of people who keep saying, hey, one day I'm going to start my own thing. But then you start making a comfortable living at a company. You like where you work. Uh, most people don't end up actually starting anything. So what made that leap for you? I think for me, I just thought about the 
pros and cons, right? Starting a business, it's like you definitely take less salary. But I was very fortunate, right? Like I didn't pick computer science. I didn't pick tech, but I kind of got dragged into it. And as everyone knows, it's been a very hot industry. It's like a huge uh, growth in the industry over the last 20, whatever, 30 years. And ended up, I was able to save up some money at LinkedIn. Not a crazy amount, but yeah, I got lucky out of school that I got into tech early. And then once I save a, up a little bit of money, I'm the kind of person, I don't really like have a lot of stuff. Like my lifestyle is very minimal. So I was thinking, well, like I could, like I have all these savings and I could just, you know, work at a company and save more money, but for what, right? You know, I want to make sure I you know, do something, uh, you know, super impactful. Just try to try something for myself. So it's a combination of like, like my opportunity cost and, um, you know, the potential upside of starting a business from a personal satisfaction perspective. Like I, I don't get that much satisfaction out of, you know, buying expensive things. So even if I did keep working like a, you know, at a big company, getting promoted, making a lot of money, making a lot of bonuses, I, I like wouldn't know what to do with that money. Right. So I'm young. I have relatively high amounts of energy. I think it's time to take advantage of, of my current stage in life. You know, we also have the previous guests mentioned about the word impact. Uh, so I'm curious for you. What does impact mean? Like you, you want to do something impactful, but what does that mean? It's more like personal satisfaction, right? I want to do something that makes me happy um, at a deep level. And entrepreneurship is more satisfying than making a very large and stable paycheck at a large company. The most, most satisfying thing is being able to shape the world according to one's own vision in a small way, at least, right? Having the autonomy to pursue what you believe the right thing to do, it may not be the right thing to do in the grand scheme of things, but at least having that autonomy and that, I don't know if I'm capable, but at least the, the space to pursue that. It's not necessarily about just operating a business, but it's about pursuing some opportunities from something that you think is bigger than yourself and that you think should be pursued, which, which I find very exciting. And I think it makes sense, right? It's almost a, a matter of uh, leverage, right? Being one member of a thousand person company that is making a good impact on the world, you're one one thousand of that uh, impact. Whereas if you're building a business out of nothing, at least you can tell a pretty compelling story to yourself and people around you that, look, this company would have not existed. Zero dollars, zero people would have been impacted by this. Now, you know, there's a thousand employees who are raising a thousand families on this business and there's all these customers benefiting from my product. It came right. out of this, right? And that must feel pretty good. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it's also a lot of pressure, right? Because knowing that these people, like their livelihoods depend on us being a going concern, right? Like that, that's a little bit of pressure for sure. Uh, but also very motivating, right? It's, it's already become bigger than just myself, right? It's bigger than just me, my co-founder, and, and some idea that we want to uh, add value, some idea that we think will add value to the world. Now it's become that plus a mission that other people have bought into as well. So, Gotcha. Makes sense. We can pick up where we said, hey, when you went to business school, like you pretty much knew you were going to start a business, right? So Dan, like why did you decide that you had to start a business? 
when I went to business school, I already had the notion I wanted to start something in the future. But for me, it was really three things lined up. Uh, one is I found a co-founder with very similar goals to me. And two is a space I'm very passionate about. And three, it's a market opportunity that I think where we can have like a really meaningful impact. Okay. And was this specific to Shipyard's vision here or was it just like any business in that space would do? Uh, it was specific to Shipyard's vision. Yeah. Shipyard's vision of empowering e-commerce merchants to be more productive and successful. So how did that come up? Why e-commerce? Why this space? Uh, was there something specific in your personal experience? Did you meet somebody with expertise here? How did that happen? Actually, when I was working at LinkedIn, I had started a e-commerce store with my younger sister. Well, actually, it, my younger sister started an e-commerce store. And at the time, she was in high school and she asked to, me to help her run it because she didn't really have you know a lot of the expertise. And so I came on board and I started to help her work on it. And through that experience, I got exposed to a lot of other merchants in this e-commerce ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just really fell in love with this space. I, I loved the kind of like the passion that merchants had for whether it's their products, like designing products or um, building their brand or their passion for um, connecting with their customers. And I thought it was really cool that a lot of these merchants were building really successful businesses either out of their bedrooms or from you know halfway around the world and were able to create like something out of nothing, uh, you know, through, through this online channel. So I stayed involved in the space. Um, also my co-founder who I'd met on an internship during undergrad, he also ran his own e-commerce store and he had previously, uh, built a, um, e-commerce app, which uh, became really successful. It was used by over 15,000 merchants and he sold that as well. So, he, um, he was like, very deep in the e-commerce ecosystem too. And uh, when I was in business school, he had he was actually working for the largest Shopify agency in Japan, um, and you know they were serving uh, you know all sorts of big clients like uh, you know Universal Music, Godiva, chocolates, things like that. So um, both of us we had very similar uh, interests, and were you know both had very similar entrepreneurship goals, and so this kind of really just the stars aligned, I think. And so when you went back to HBS, you, you knew you were going to start a business. Uh, you already had a bunch of exposure to the e-commerce sort of world and thought, found that very inspiring. And what would you say is the, the most valuable thing that you got out of Harvard Business School, which is obviously a good school, right? But is it, is it the brand? Is it, you know, the, the textbooks? But yeah, what, what is the most important thing there, do you think? I think for me, it was just meeting a ton of uh, really diverse classmates and making a lot of really good friends. Um, it's all about the, I think for any, uh, whether it's in business or anything else in life, it's all about the, the friends that you have, right? I know there's this uh, study that they did a longitudinal study of happiness over, you know, 70 years or something, like follow the same people for 70 years, and they found the biggest factor in uh, sustained happiness over a lifetime is just the depth and breadth of your relationships. And I feel like in business school, you really have the space to hang out and, you know, space to connect with people uh, that are like-minded, 
really kind people in a lot of ways. So I, I'd say just the, the friendships I built, that was probably the biggest. Gotcha. It's the friendship along the way. That's the real treasure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like uh, there's lots of like studies about how, how people form their strongest friendships, right? A lot of it's just unintended collisions in a close period of time. And you just have a lot of like unintended interactions with the same people of, you know, who have like similar kind of like vibes as you. And that, that's how you become friends, right? You just like proximity and, and frequency of interaction. Definitely. So how did the shipyard play out? When did you go from having an idea to, you know, deciding with your co-founder, hey, this is going to happen and then, you know, build your product, raise your funding, all that. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? So Sam, my co-founder, is someone who I deeply respect, deeply respected for a long time. And we always like kept in touch, even when he wasn't living in the States, we kept in touch and talked about you know, what we're working on, what ideas we're experimenting or testing. Um, so it was kind of like an ongoing process. I think the first time we, we discussed uh, anything that remotely resembled Shipyard was probably late 2019. I remember it was like a big snowstorm in Boston. And uh, I, you know, got home, it was like really cold and, you know, we caught up over, over, uh, I think at the time people didn't use Zoom. I think it was just like Facebook Messenger video, right? And uh, yeah, we were discussing, he was, he was working at the e-commerce agency and then he was telling me about his experiences working at the e-commerce agency. And then uh, I was like, man, like that's, it's really cool that you're able to, to do that, right? Um, to actually do full-time what you, what you're really passionate about. Um, at that he, it was a part-time thing for him as well, right? He was doing a Shopify store in the past. So, and then that was probably the initial spark for it. And then we just kept like ideating, kept talking about, okay, what are the major pain points that merchants face? How do we build something that can be of immense value? And, you know, it's something that could also be a sustainable business. Uh, and think by summer of, 2020 we were working on it like very consistently every week maybe like um you know like 20 hours a week something like that and then at the end of 2020 i actually uh we were getting really serious i flew to taiwan actually this was yeah middle like peak pandemic i flew to taiwan i quarantined for 14 days in a quarantine hotel um and he was uh he was in taiwan at the time so after I left quarantine, I had another two weeks. Um, this was during the uh, January break for uh, business school. So we had we have one month uh, break in January. So I went to Taiwan and um, we spent two weeks just like discussing our vision for the future of this company. And I think that's the point where we're like, okay, like let's do it. So we incorporated uh, January 1st of 2021. We actually thought about incorporating earlier but we didn't do it because of uh, we didn't want to have to uh, do our taxes for 2020. So we incorporated January 1st, 2021 to, so we could skip one tax cycle. And then, yeah, I think that, that was when we were both like, hey, like this is, this is it, we're, we're committed. So January 1st, 2021, and then we worked on a bunch of ideas. We actually built um, two other products before the current instantiation of what the Shipyard product is. Um, we raised money around the end of 2021. Um, uh, and then at that point, yeah, after that, we realized we had, we were onto something and, you know, we started building up a team. So that takes us about eight months to now. 
Nice. Okay, so Dan, I have one more question about Shipyard. So where is Shipyard at today? Like, you know, where in the journey are you now and what, what are you looking forward to next? Yeah, so right now we're in the we're solidly in the finding product market fit uh, stage of the journey. Uh, we have really good early traction with our pilot customers and uh, our you know few paying uh, early paying customers as well. So uh, from here on, it's about solidifying the the value proposition and finding a repeatable go to market motion. And um, yeah, next big milestone is. We got to get to the point where we can prove that repeatable go to market in order to raise Series A. So that concludes the section about sort of Dan's backstory and shipyard. Uh, I want to ask you, Dan, uh, it's something that's come up a couple of times throughout this conversation already, which is fate and destiny. Yeah. Right. So what is your view on determinism? Yeah, I think um, this is something, this is like a perspective that actually developed throughout business school is that um, I think a lot of what happens in life, a lot of the outcomes in life are, uh, you know, largely in part driven by destiny. It's driven by fate, right? It's not really driven by any, uh, not really driven by the inputs so much. Um, Mm -hmm. And we don't really appreciate the, the, I guess the impact of, randomness in, in outcomes because a lot of times we we assign post hoc rationalizations to what happened right uh, and there's a lot of interesting like psychology research around you know how people rationalize uh, both good and bad decisions in very different ways um, so yeah I think just throughout the last few years I've realized that you know like I think you always know like growing up uh that you know there is a portion of luck involved in any endeavor, mm-hmm. um, especially if you play sports, right? If you play sports, there's always like uh, uh, I played a lot of like very random sports growing up, but there's a lot of luck involved in sports, right? There's a lot of hard work too, but um, you, you get to see that too on TV as well if you watch any sort of professional sports. Is that that's what makes it exciting, right? Because you never know who's going to win. Like the underdog who has who you know has the less well-funded team, like way, uh, like less hype talent sometimes pulls through. And that's, that's why sports stories are so emotional and, and draw so, so much, um, so much attention. I think, yeah, for me, that determinism became more apparent uh, as I got older. So now I feel it's probably like closer to 90, 10, whereas in the past, maybe I would have said like the opposite where it's like growing up, you you can kind of you have more uh, more correlation between input versus output, but now just like my story of why, why I started Shipyard, it's like really it's just the stars aligned, right? Like I was in an environment in business school where I was around all these people that were able to help me validate the market opportunity very quickly. I had uh, my co-founder at the time uh, was in a position where he was you know. He was uh, selling his uh, existing business, his, his last um, you know, venture, and he was looking for some uh, you know, next big challenge. And uh, he was also happy to be working at a, the e-commerce, largest e-commerce agency in Japan. And, you know, I feel like the stars aligned, right? Like, you can't really, you can't really uh, work your way into that scenario, right? There's no, you can position yourself to, 
to you know maybe have that happen at higher probability, but there's no way to deterministically make that happen. So let me back up a little bit, actually,、um, and put on my philosophy minor hat. When people talk about deterministism, I, I have a sense you might be using it a little bit differently from you know whatever the mainstream definition is, because when people talk about de- deterministism, they usually put it in the contrast to things like luck. Or, or stars aligned.、Uh, when, when people are talking about determinism, they usually talk about there's a predetermined plan, and、uh, if you assume a competent observer、uh, and they know all the input, everything is already determined. Like you know, you can basically from a state, initial state of inputs, you can、mm-hmm. calculate whatever the、mm-hmm. outcome is, given the time. Right? Are you defined the same way, or it's something different? In my mind, the mental model is this, right? And I have the dictionary definition here, which I think will be helpful. Uh, in my mind, it, it, there's two different axes. One is internal versus external in terms of the agent. So, as a human being,、uh, how much of your fate, quote unquote, is determined by internal, you know, free will, what you do, what you decide, versus external, what your family, your society, the random shit that happens to you in life,、uh, the stars, whether they align. And then there's the question of chance versus like predetermined destiny. And I think those are kind of two orthogonal axes, right? Like there are random thoughts that pop into my head. There are random events that happen. Someone gets hit by a car. That's mostly random.、Um, so the dictionary definition of determinism is in philosophy the doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. Some philosophers have taken determinism to imply that individual human beings have no free will and cannot be held morally responsible for their actions. So I think this definition is more about that internal-external difference of like, look, there, you don't get to decide. You know, pure determinism is you as the agent have no influence over the outcome of things, including your own thoughts and actions. There's no agency, basically. Right. And I, the way I've heard Dan sort of explore this is, it's not that binary, right? I think what Dan's saying is more ninety ten, where ninety percent of the stuff that happens to you in your life is not a result of your own thoughts and free will and actions. You do have a say, but it's ten percent. Yeah, exactly. I、um, not that sophisticated, not that knowledgeable philosophy, so I didn't know that that definition and the implication of that. So I was using more of the word in the sense of like. The outcomes are not deterministic, rather than trying to imply anything about the philosophy of determinism, which is sounds like very、uh, it can go down a very deep rabbit hole. <laughs> Have you heard of、um, uh, Laplace Demon? No, tell me more. Yeah, so Laplace is a very famous physicist and mathematician who、uh, invented the famous Laplace transformation. Laplace Demon is basically saying that, given assuming this demon, this this agent. Has all the computational power in the world, and、uh, if this demon knows all the inputs about the st- any state given, this demon can know whatever is the state in the future. So basically, the future is knowable by definition. Hence, there is no free will because this demon already determined everything, assuming he or she has the infinite、uh, computational power. So that's what you know. They、uh, this hypothesis of、um, Laplace Demon, and that's a huge topic in philosophy because you know people treasure their free will. That, that's a, another rabbit hole. But I, I do want to say, you know, I thought about this when I was back in college. I do believe that everything is determined. I, I do believe in fate. I do believe in there's destiny, and I, I don't believe in、uh, free will. 
I also believe that um, Disney is not knowable to us. So it actually doesn't make a difference whether you have a free or not, because uh, even if everything's written uh, for you, you don't know it. So um, might I was just act as if there is there is free will. Uh, is basically my take on this topic. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I I don't have any attachment to free will. Like it doesn't matter if I have free will or not. Like I'm gonna live my life the way I was gonna live it anyways, right? Like it's like who cares, right? <laughs> you know, I'm gonna go go eat the food I want to eat, and you know. Uh, live the life I want to live, no matter what. Like it doesn't matter if it's predetermined. So, right, it's enjoy it. Really odd that the, all three of us hold pretty much the same opinion. Um, I have no attachment to the idea of free will. Like personally, the way I see it is, the process that's happening in here is not under my control. In most of it is pretty much like I. My job as the ego, as the like story of self, is to explain why I've done certain things. There's a German saying somewhere that basically says a man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills. We can't decide what we want. We can do things about getting what we want, but ultimately what we want comes from somewhere else that we cannot seem to explain. Whether that's intrinsic or extrinsic, we don't know, but we don't have a conscious process that we can explain why we want certain things especially more complex things in life that's not just eating and sleeping. And yeah, I think some people get very attached to the idea of free will to the point where that's almost a point of pride. Like I, I, I feel wrong if I don't somehow have this completely owned uh, like initiative in what I do in life. I don't really see it that way. I think maybe my quote unquote will is predetermined. But it doesn't make sense because it's not predetermined in a way that's knowable to me. All that matters is how, how you tell yourself that story. And that may change what you do in your own life and to those around you. But ultimately, does it make a difference? Because maybe that's also predetermined. You can't escape it. I would generally agree in the sense that your life, the vast majority of what happens to you, is a function of things that are not in your control. Without getting dragged into you know, definitions and philosophical history, when I reflect upon my life, I think people have all sorts of biases and people are very good at telling stories post hoc. We'd like to look at a story and go, oh, I started a company, right? Let's imagine it's 20 years from now, all three of us have started successful companies and we look back and we have a chat and we're like, oh, of course, the moment I met Dan, I knew he was gonna be successful. I knew he just had what it takes. You know, everyone, when I, since I was a child, like all these details come out. Much like, and I, I didn't mean no offense to you, Dan, but like much like when you told the story just now about entrepreneurship, how you got dragged into these things that seemingly are these dots that are not connected, but now they're connected because you've started a company. You've become an entrepreneur. But I bet if you, if you had been nudged in a different direction in life and you never ended up being an entrepreneur, maybe those memories never would have been strung together into this pearl necklace of a story that fits so neatly the narrative that entrepreneurship is in your blood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? I 100% agree. I mean, uh, you know what, like, uh, didn't Steve Jobs say something like you can only connect the dots looking backwards, right? Like, that's, right. I mean, that's another version of the same thing, right? Like, you're not going to, you're not going to take, take the, you're basically, you have, you're drawing in your life when you take actions, you're just drawing, putting a bunch of dots on a piece of paper, right? And right. when you get to some point, you're, you're at some dot along this timeline, 
and you're just trying to find a way to draw a line between the dots that yeah, came before. Yeah. You're, you're just trying right. to fit something, and if uh, where you are today uh, doesn't fit the dots in the, the in the past, you would have just fit some other dots, right? So it's like that's what I'm saying. It's like arbitrary. There, there's always a differential equation to fit uh, your dots, but uh... there you go. There you go. <laughs> And there's the whole topic of overfitting, right? This yeah. idea that you, you take a past pattern that makes sense. And by the way, there's a million stories that make equal amounts of sense. But you pick your story because this one makes you look good or whatever the reason is that ourselves are attracted to that story, right? Of yeah. course, I was born an entrepreneur. Look, when I was a kid, I sold bananas to my, team, right. uh, to my <laughs> classmates, right? right. Um, and once you fit that story into your narrative, it's actually a useful thing because it rallies people around you. People start to believe in the man, the myth, of, oh, yeah, of course, Dan is a great entrepreneur. Like, we all knew that, right? So when Dan has another idea and wants some money, I'm going to invest in it because you know what? This trend line extrapolates and he's going to be successful again because he has been successful before. Uh, and so, like, that's where I think that worldview starts to have an impact on the future because I can tell myself stories all I want about my past, but the impact is on the present and the future. Last thing I would comment on this is um, I think people confuse... Um, randomness with free will. Like people quote randomness as a defense against determinism. Uh, I think personally, I just think randomness is a feature because the system is too complicated. There's, it's pseudo random. I think just like, you know, if you program, right, there's no really random function exists. It's approximation to the so-called randomness, right? Um, and uh, that's a, that's a whole, um, uh, rabbit hole you can dive into how <laughs> computer science whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. see there's two things we're complaining here right one is yeah. is randomness the same thing as free will and two true versus fake random right i think your first point actually is a really important one that we shouldn't conflate with the, the second one even if there was something that's completely random like the decay of uh, a radioactive element that as far as we understand from a quantum level is truly random that atom is not conscious and doesn't have free will as a result of being random. Let me finish my thought. I think the thing I'm trying to say is there's no true randomness, in my opinion, in this world, even at a quantum level. I think this system is too complicated for human beings to rationalize, and the thing we observe as random is actually predetermined, uh, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah. But I, I get so your you're point. you're in the Einstein camp of God doesn't roll dice. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, he or she doesn't. Or whatever pronoun God prefers. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Dan? What's your take on uh, randomness and free will? We talked about sort of free will doesn't matter, right? But do you think there's true randomness in the world? Yeah, I mean, going back to your your point about like radioact radioactive decay, I think that is very random. The other thought I had about this is uh, Adam doesn't have like uh, like a mind of its own, right? But then, do we really have a you know mind of our own? Like if we're if we're putting that argument on the table, imagine if we were some some alien species looking into uh, observing what's happening on Earth. And I don't mean aliens in the sense of like ET, where you know it's like a little gray creature uh, that's anthropomorphized to resemble some somewhat human. Just a completely alien that doesn't it doesn't even have to think like we think, but it can maybe can even observe the world in different ways right then maybe to that person that that like that object that like species or whatever 
for for them, the way we act is similar to the way we think atoms act, right? Maybe there's that possibility that to, to, when when they see what humans are doing on on this world, they see us as just randomly doing things similar to how we see atoms decaying randomly. It's just a matter of like what lens you're viewing the activities and the outcomes of a particular set of of items. That's interesting. And I want to bring us back to Earth a little bit. And I want to talk about a real life topic and see what you guys think. This is a Harvard Business School publication. Uh, It's an article uh, titled, Why Parents Tell Kids, uh, When Parents Tell Kids to Work Hard, Do They Send the Wrong Message? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I guess to summarize the article, it's saying your upbringing has a huge impact on your life, which is not something you can determine. Uh, we're telling kids that the most important thing is your effort, which may not be true because a lot of the times it's even more important, you know, the family you're born into, the environment you're brought up on, uh, in. And the, the, the question this article proposes is whether we should stop telling kids that the focus is to work harder. Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the other underlying message of this article was uh, more at a, a systemic level whether it makes sense for you know uh, the parents of uh, from affluent affluent parents to stop telling their kids that hard work is what makes people successful because then they might discount the uh, you know less privileged backgrounds of you know other kids kids from other families but I mean obviously that's never going to happen right like in any rational uh, you know, any rational parent, if even if they're from affluent family, they're going to tell their kids to work hard because that's how you, you know, continue to, you sustain your 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 affluence, right? Like you don't, right. you're not going to tell your kids to not work hard, right? So, I mean, I, in some ways, I don't think the the article can change things at a systemic level, but I think it it's like very thought provoking. At the at, the reason I linked it is more as like a to, to kind of. Uh, uh, hit home the what I was saying earlier about you know ninety percent of what happens in life is not really up to you right mm-hmm. but the fact that you know as long as you can accept that and continue to work hard under those circumstances then I think that's the the best outcome for for any yeah I think that makes sense seed what do you have to say I feel it makes a few assumptions um, first is there are inequalities or systematic inequalities in our system, uh, which I agree with. Uh, you know, that's true for any society. Um, and the second is, um, feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's trying to suggest that um, those powers are so so large that uh, it def- in most cases, it outweighs the individual effort to overcome them. Do you th- is, that, is that a fair thing to say, what the... Article is assuming, yeah, and uh, then it seems like the solution it's proposing is, uh, or, or the the suggestion it's trying to propose is to ask um, whoever in the system is, is more privileged in the current stage to tell their uh, kids to not over-indexing on work hard so that they build more empathy towards those people who are less uh, privileged. Is that kind of what it's trying to uh, suggest yeah so so my my take on this is for the first one is definitely correct uh, but I would also argue that um, 
it's not a static system, right? Like it's not like, um, you know, for example, uh, Chinese people on a global scale, right? It was pretty underprivileged. Now it's more privileged compared to a lot of other countries, right? So it's always a dynamic thing, right? It's not, it's not static. Um, the players are constantly changing, right? Um, the second, the, the second assumption, which is, um, you know, this, this thing is much important than the individual agency, uh, which I believe is probably true, but uh, it's really hard to quantify. And it's really different for different communities, different for different countries. I don't understand what's the utility to try to admit to this uh, assumption. It's like um, uh, always said, the fate is probably determined. There's a, there a destiny. Um, but it's a useful thing to have a concept called free will so people can work hard. And uh, I feel like we need that illusion to uh, keep us going. Like if we just say, you know, Dan is clearly born into a more privileged family, he's smarter than me, he's taller than me, he's better looking than me, seems has more muscle, and I should just sit home. And it's not a useful thing to fight against the system. To, to win against an unfair system, it takes ignorance and uh, confidence to do so. So like I would say, I don't understand um, what's the purpose of uh, admitting to, to, to this, almost like I mean to defeat, I feel like, uh, if you're running the government uh, that way. I, I don't know if this is a, a guide to running the government. I think it's more, well, I mean, uh, l let's not look into the article too much, but I think my, my take on just this idea of, okay, if you agree that 90% is not up to you, then what do you do with the remaining 10%, right? And right. my major takeaway is for remaining 10%, you still got to maximize it, right? Because right. at the end of the day, that's that's all you have to control. So you should treasure <laughs> right. it even more than if the next person might be born into a more affluent family, but the, you know they could just randomly get in a car crash or whatever. Like you never know, right? Like there's a lot of like, the 90% the, swings both ways is, is I guess the main takeaway. So to your, I completely agree your point, Seed, that like, Free will is a useful concept to keep people motivated and push society forward in general. So, And I feel like this article and the like headline is pretty loaded. Um, <clears throat> I feel like the way it comes across to me, in America at least, I think there's generally sort of two stereotypical polarized opinions about this topic of meritocracy, working hard and succeeding, Right. On the sort of stereotypical left, the opinion is, look, the system is rigged. There's a lot of systemic inequities. You don't get that much of a say in what you actually achieve in life. Most people who are successful are born into successful parents, families. Uh, most people who are less fortunate are born into bad uh, environments where it's very hard for them to succeed. And as a result, we should focus on changing the system to make the outcomes more equitable for the folks and, and sort of de-emphasize the idea that you need to work hard, which I disagree with. The other side, which is the stereotypical right perspective, is the opposite, right? They over-index on the extreme other end, which is, oh, people should stop moaning and complaining about things they can't control, even if that's 90%. You should focus on the 10%. That's all that matters. Meritocracy is how the world works. You can't control things you can't control. You should focus on things you can. Uh, and so they also sometimes tend to over-index on the initiative side. Even Sometimes they forget the fact that you only really have 10% control. So uh, people who really subscribe to that school of thought can also be seen as very unempathetic to those who are less fortunate. That, hey, if you're homeless, it's because you wanted to be homeless, because you chose to be homeless, 
right? And I think I disagree with that too, right? I think sort of the way I see the world, I think is pretty aligned with what both of you are saying is I generally think, yeah, 90% of your life is externally determined, but you do have 10% control over your life and you should focus on that 10%. And I think we ought to be more empathetic to both sides, right? So, you know, for the people who are less fortunate, yeah, like we all know people who are less fortunate than us. Right. And like having grown up in China, I think that gives an even better sample of folks that are that never had the chance of of getting the education and the, a lot of the things I have in life now. But I also know a lot of people who are way better off than me. Um, I, I think there's a dangerous t- tendency to make it a really bipolar thing. So people who see this headline, which is kind of loaded, are we sending the wrong message? It immediately makes people who tend to be closer to the right go like, oh, here's just another article to give people an excuse to give up in life. To say like, oh, the game is rigged, I'm not going to play it, right? Whereas, you know, on the other end, there are people who will look at this and go like, yeah, the game is rigged. Like, why are we telling our kids to try hard? We should tell our kids to take care of themselves and take it easy and just like, we should fix the system instead. I think it's neither, right? It's kind of like, or it's both. The system is fucked. We should do our best to give people the mobility the opportunity to improve the 90%. But I don't think anyone's in a position, no matter how unfortunate or fortunate you are, to just not try and control that 10% because that is when you choose to lose. And that's yeah. your own fault. Yeah. yeah, it's not a binary choice, right? Like, uh, you know, let's say something, some machine's broken, but you have to run this machine. So try fix it. And uh, also on the side, try to find something new, right? Like you shouldn't just fucking stop running it why are the two choices seemingly either complete apathy to those who are unfortunate, building freaking spikes on benches so that homeless people have nowhere to sleep? And why is the other option infinite government handouts so that people never have to work? Like, the world really doesn't have to be one or the other. Though, of course, there's a whole conversation to be had about media and social media, how the algorithms work and how we ma- maximize clicks and why that drives people to seemingly observe the world as if it's binary like that. I, I think a lot of people I talk to are actually much more nuanced on this topic. Yeah, I mean, this article headline is a good example of that, you know, the clickbait type. I'm not saying the article is clickbait. The article is very insightful, but like the headline itself is, is designed to attract clicks, right? Which makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, you know, telling a slave to work hard doesn't really make sense, right? But if you have to play the game, you're forced to play the game, right? It's better to have a winner's mindset. Uh, I, remember, I, I, I forgot who said this to, this to me, but um, um, you have to play to win. Being cynical is laziness, and optimism is always a choice, which is, I agree with, although I'm a cynic, but uh, you know, I, I understand the spirits that uh, you have to play to win. And uh, while people are working on the system to, to improve it, to make it more fair, because in the long run, you want a fair, fair system to produce the maximum result. But on an individual level, it's much better, right? It's much more efficient to, um, I think, to tell the story that everybody is playing to win instead of playing to not lose. Uh, that's a much better way to, uh, to form the narrative, to run a efficient society. Right. And I think the one thing I'll add to that is it, I think it's dangerous for society, for enough people in society to believe that the game is so rigged that it's not worth playing. That's how you get extremism. That's how you get people who are like, I'd rather go hurt innocent people. I'd rather go shoot up a school 
because the system is so rigged against me that I have absolutely no chance of getting what I believe I deserve. So I'm going to sabotage the system because there is no chance to improve it to the point where it's acceptable. It's a dangerous, dangerous belief uh, for people to have. Uh, I would argue that, you know, the American society, for example, is playing a similar game with democracy, right? Is the system tipping towards certain people? Do some votes matter more than others? Of course, you would be silly to say no. But does that mean you should not trust the vote at all and just not vote at all? I, th I think that's pretty dangerous. Um, in, if enough people in this country stop believing that the vote is real in any way, that's how democracy dies. And we can have a separate conversation about whether democracy is the best and all that important and whatnot. But, you know, in this country, I'd like to think that people hold that to be a pretty, pretty important value of the country and to lose it because you lost faith in the system is a dangerous game to play. Yeah, I mean, American dream never existed, right? It's always a racist country, right? To a certain group of people, it changes over time, and sometimes it's larger, sometimes smaller, but... It doesn't mean you stop trying. Exactly. It's a very good dream to have. You should keep dreaming the dream. So it kind of boils down to like, yes, the game is rigged, but no, you should still play to win. I love that. I just love the way you summarize it, Hanson. My takeaway from all this is that there's these two seemingly divergent ideas that are both equally true, which is one, the game will always be rigged in some way. And two, you should always play to win, not just play to participate. Thanks so much for having me on the show, guys. And for this mind-bending metaphysical conversation. I had a blast. Hanson and Seed, I love being on the show with you guys. You guys are... Some two of the most thoughtful people I know. So, um, yeah, thanks again for having me.